Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before the Lord. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is God's good word to you. So we continue on in our series in Ecclesiastes, where we have a, a weathered sage known to us as the preacher looking at life under the sun in, in this broken world. And the preacher, he looks, he looks really hard at life. He looks with x-ray vision at life and death and all the seasons in between. He looks at people striving for success, success and wealth and pleasure and recognition as well as people's sufferings, their oppressions, injustices that we saw just a couple weeks ago. And with that x-ray vision, with the skill of a soul physician, he diagnoses some of our most profound brokenness as humans. Now, he doesn't always have the best bedside manner, but he does shoot straight with us. And today, he turns his somewhat cynical gaze, if you read the book, you know, he's kind of a skeptic, from all the things out there under the sun to right here, to religion, you might say. So, like, maybe if you think of some televised religious broadcast, you know, sometimes if churches on TV or whatever, uh, they'll use the camera not just to show who's up front speaking or the singers on stage, but they'll also sometimes pan across the audience. You'll see people, you know, taking notes or dozing off. Actually, usually they don't show those on camera, but taking notes, you'll see people singing, you know, interacting with the service. And it's like the preacher wants to take a camera and go across our congregation today. He wants to pan across the room and look deeper than our Sunday attire or our pretenses that we bring to the core of our motives and our reasons for being here. And just as he found in his day some foolishness as people approach the house of God, I imagine that he'll find some in, in our day as well. Now, like the preacher, many people today have rightly identified you know, hip hypocritical uh, arrogant, unkind, thoughtless behavior in the church. And as a result of that, they've written off God completely, written off church altogether. But the teacher, even though he's kind of cynical and skeptical, it's interesting, he doesn't do that. He doesn't jettison God or worship of God altogether so much as try to steer us away from a certain, a certain way of approaching God or a certain way of doing religion. Because you see, what most people don't realize is that the Bible is the harshest critic of religion that you'll ever meet. Long before Karl Marx 
or Mark Twain got a hold of some quotable um, sayings about religion. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, not to mention Jesus himself, uh, beat them to the punch. So, before anyone's tempted to just totally write God off as a result of the foolishness that they find in church, perhaps we should first hear what God has to say about it. So in this passage, the teacher's going to give a, a strong critique of what you might call religion or one approach to religion. But rather than ditching faith altogether, he's going to also offer us an alternative, an alternative approach to God. So he gives both a critique and an alternative. And this alternative approach, it, it will keep us from turning religion into just another farce. If we heed his advice, it will keep us who are believers from making religion into something that honestly probably deserves to be mocked or abandoned. And so the critiques and the alternatives, they come in pairs. So let's start with the first pair. There's just two pairs, so let's start with the first. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So when you go to the house of God, he says, guard your steps. Now, of course, the preacher's thinking likely of the ancient temple in Israel which is kind of a different thing going than what we're after in New Testament church gatherings. You know, we know God's presence doesn't reside in a building, but in God's very people. And yet, both then as now, God's people still would gather together for worship. So the location is less important, but the activity is still critical. And when it comes to approaching God in worship, the preacher is advocating for, for awareness and thoughtfulness as you approach God. So like my youngest son, Landon, he's about a year and a half and he started walking or toddling, if you can call what he's doing walking, I'm not sure. I think toddling is probably the better term. But when we get to like uneven terrain, like the back patio as you go off our back porch into our yard, it's got all these old block pavers on it that we inherited when we bought our house. And one day we'll need to take all the old pavers up, rip the roots out of the ground, and probably pour concrete to make it flat. But right now, we're using it as advanced balance training for our children when they go outside. And when Landon steps down to go outside, I'm always telling him, all right, big steps, buddy, big steps now. You know, why? Okay, watch your step, watch where you're going. Because he gets out the porch, you know, he sees the great outdoors, and he's just ready to go. And you're like, okay, slow, slow your pace just a bit. Pay attention to where you're going. That's what I'm asking my one-year-old son to do. You know, be reflective of your steps, one-year-old. And I'm not sure he totally gets it. But if you're approaching God in prayer or worship, approaching God, wouldn't it make some sense to give it a moment's reflection <laughs> on what you're stepping into? Now, modern church, we've tried really, really hard to get away from the kind of overly formal or grandiose style of worship that marked the church in like the Middle Ages, for example, which I think there's some good reasons for that change. You know, there's a danger in portraying God as stiff or distant or so grand that he would come across as cold. 
or inaccessible. So, you know, we try to warm things up nowadays. We have a coffee bar. We have comfortable seating. We have a conversational setting. When you walk in, you know you're going to hear people chattering. It's not like stone-cold silence. This is North Wake. People are talking, you know. But you do wonder if there's another danger for us in swinging the pendulum to the other side and forgetting just who we are approaching when we gather for worship. I mean, you heard a bit, uh, if you were here at the beginning of the service and the announcements, you heard a bit about the Family Table series that we're going to do this summer. And the gist of that series is going to be something to the effect of like how to walk into church or six steps to loving your church or something like that. And it'll mostly have to do with us being trained on how to walk into church on Sunday and interact with each other and encourage each other in the time that we have together on Sunday mornings. But I think we would be remiss not to hear the words of the preacher that our first steps as we approach God ought to be thoughtful, reverential, reflective steps. Watch your step, the preacher says. And you know, even if you're not a Christian, perhaps you're just here and you're exploring faith, you know, I, I would suggest maybe it still makes good sense to think about God and approach Him with a sense of reverence, even in your exploring. Because modern people, I mean, we can tend to kind of think of God as on our own level. You know, like, hopefully, if God can explain Himself to me at church this week, and I'm feeling in the mood, I'll allow Him another pass for the week and not go totally atheist on Him just yet. But he better stay on his best behavior, God, you know, or, or he's out. And this is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in his essay called God in the Dock, which is the British term for where the accused person sits during the trial. Lewis was British. He said this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He, the modern man, is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench or the judge, and God is in the dock. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes would say, this doesn't really make any good sense. You know, that's, that's not exactly how this works. If God is there, then he's in heaven. And you are on earth. So there's a big gap. There's a gap in knowledge and power and wisdom and splendor. And you should probably mind the gap, you know, while we're being British. And if you'll learn to mind the gap, you'll save yourself from some pretty serious religious errors. He, go, he goes on to give one here. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing is evil. So don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So the preacher, he wants to critique empty, thoughtless, hurried words spoken to God. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't be in a hurry to tell God everything that he needs to know and everything that he should do for you. It's just not, it's not quite fitting. He says, you know, maybe it would be kind of like if you've, if you've ever met someone famous or someone you know has met someone famous. Um, so let's just say the, the most famous celebrity right now, according to one website from one Google search, so don't hold me to this, but the most famous celebrity according to that little search is Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. 
So let's say that you and a friend, you have a chance to meet the rock for a few minutes. And your friend just starts blabbering on and on, like about their life and what they're, who they are and where they came from and what they did. And you're mortified, you know, because it's like, come on, it's the rock. Like, maybe it'd be better for you to shut up for a second and let him talk. There may be a different illustration, you know, if, if you listen to podcasts uh, or talk shows and stuff like that. There are podcast hosts that aren't really all that great of a host. They'll have a special guest on their show who's they usually invite because they're an expert on that topic matter, whatever they're talking about in that episode. But really, you can kind of tell that the host just wants to impress the guest with all of their knowledge about this, this topic. And you're like, dude, just be quiet and let the special guest that you probably paid to come on your show talk. It's not fitting. So the teacher, he wants to critique this kind of thoughtless, careless, casual, verbose religion. And as he looks across the panorama of houses of worship, he's just calling it like he sees it. So how would his x-ray camera catch you? How do you approach God? Do you walk into worship too careless, too casual, thoughtless, ready to talk, but not ready to listen, not even really giving a moment's thought to prepare to engage with the holy God of the universe? That's his critique. And, and it, hits, it lands squarely on me too. But he doesn't just offer a critique, he also offers an alternative. He said it's much more important for you to hear what God has to say to you than for you to say what you want to say to God. And this is not, this is not to say that we should be in some state of permanent silent prayer or meditation, as some religions would have it. This is Christianity, so we are encouraged to pray to a personal God. But I think he is saying that the proportion of listening and speaking in Christianity is definitely asymmetrical. It's, it's not the same. You know, it's interesting to see how Jesus, our true and better teacher, was informed by the preacher of Ecclesiastes. You hear echoes of this when Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6. This is familiar territory to many of you. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Because they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. And this is where he goes on to teach his disciples the Lord's Prayer, which is very simple, brief, concise. Who are you trying to impress with your prayers, Jesus asks. You think God's impressed by how much you say or how well you say it? There's nothing he doesn't already know about you, so you can let your words be few before him. Not because he hates to hear your voice, or that he doesn't care about you. He already knows. He already sees everything about you. And he wants you to hear words that you need to hear. Even in prayer. Uh, David Gibson writes that we tend to think of prayer as if we're talking to God through a microphone. You take a spiritual microphone and we talk into the mic. And God's up there you know, with his headphones di- dialing in trying to listen to us. And Gibson says it's not, it's not like that at all. When we pray, 
It's like God is listening to us with a stethoscope. He hears what's going on underneath the things that we say. It's like a doctor listening in. What's really going on in there? So there's, there's no need to run your mouth with God or try to impress Him with your prayers. Draw near to Him first by listening. Listening to what He's saying to you through His Word. Why start there? Why do we start with listening? Because it's in the listening that you'll learn how to speak to God. It's His Word that sets the record straight on who He is, on who you are, on how much He's loved you, and how He's paid for your sins by His blood. And now, as Hebrews says, His blood speaks a better word to us, a word of welcome into His presence, a word of acceptance into His arms, a word of challenge and a word of discipline when we need it. So if you will let all your talking with God start by listening to Him first, you'll learn how to talk to him. And you won't feel the need to fluff up everything that you say. So let his word shape your prayers by listening first. And it'll draw out a humble, simple response. So why don't we put this section into practice for just a minute? Let's pause and stop our words for just a second and reflect on a few questions. Do you rush into worship with little to no thought about who it is you're approaching? What might need to change about your daily rhythms or Sunday habits that would help you give some thought to your steps as you approach God? Do you prioritize hearing God's word in your life such that your prayers are shaped and informed by the truth of his word? Take just a few moments in silence to reflect on these and then we'll carry on. So may God grant us reverence and thoughtfulness as we approach him. Okay, the next critique that he has of religion and then the accompanying alternative. Verse 4, he says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger, It was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Okay, so if the preacher's first warning or critique of religion has to do with people trying to impress God with their words, his second x-ray critique has to do with people trying to manipulate or control God with their promises. Now, vowing vows to God and making promises to him might seem might seem a little foreign to us today, but we've probably got our own modern version of this. You know, God, if you will just help me pass this test, I will serve you as a missionary in India, you know. Or God, if you will just get me out of this jam, I will never sin again, you know. And 30 minutes later, the test goes better than you thought. 
You get your grade back the next week. You pass the class. Whew, crisis averted. And you forget you ever said anything to God about anything. So, because you just wanted some help. You didn't really mean what you said. And I know I'm prob- probably being a little trivial here, but should God take our words seriously that we say to Him? Should He take us seriously? Should He allow Himself to be used like a lucky rabbit's foot or a get-out-of-jail-free card? Be thoughtful about what you say to God. It's not like He's not listening. You know, you know there also can be an odd spiritual pressure in places like this. Uh, from people around you who are making big plans, and they have big promises, and they're doing big things for God, such that you feel like in order for God to bless you or like you, you've got to one-up everyone else's promises and plans. You've got to do something really stunning for God too. And the preacher says, ah, it's better to just not say that kind of stuff than to say it and not follow through. Don't write checks to God with your mouth that you won't cash with your life. And if anyone's under 35 and you don't know how checks and cash work, um, don't Venmo God $65 if you only have 35 in your bank account. I don't know. Um, But you see, God is concerned here with both your integrity and with his own reputation. And again, should he not be? If you look back at verse 6, remember he said, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. Don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Zach Eswine helpfully writes, God's anger and ability to destroy our works do not describe the bully who uses anger management and with whom we walk on eggshells. Rather, he gets angry at what we would hope he would. He does not intend to approve or favor those who use his name in his house in order to do evil to others. Those who harm others and neighbors in his name, who justify it with their blindness, and who use church to exalt their own words, dreams, and plans are opposed by God. In other words, God opposes the proud. He disrupts the hypocrite, and those who misuse church in order to promote folly under the sun bother God. So God does take our words said in his name, vows spoken in his name. He, he does take those seriously. And the most drastic example of this is probably in Acts chapter 5, when the early church is just getting off the ground. And remember, at this time, there's there's a great social and economic cost to becoming a Christian. If you claim that you follow Jesus the Messiah, you are put out of society in in so many ways. So the early church, they had to band together and share resources just to make it as people. So you'd have members of the church selling like their beach house or whatever, or probably not a beach house then, but maybe some track of land that they had, they would sell and they'd bring those proceeds to the church so that it could be uh, given to those who, who had need, no, no means of caring for themselves any longer. And there's a couple in the church who after they sold their land, they, they agreed to sell it for a particular price. They sold it for that price and then they brought the money to the church but they, and they told them they sold it for a different amount, a lesser amount so that they could be seen as generous, so that they could be seen as spiritual. I mean, it's kind of a sad story because in some ways they were generous. They they did sell their land. They gave some money to the church, but they pretended like it was the full, this fuller amount so they could match everyone else's big promises and big vows that they were giving. 
but it was a lie. And in case you have any question on kind of God's feelings on the matter, by the end of the story, they are struck down dead. They, they fall down dead. I'm not sure that God has changed his feelings on these kinds of things. You can hear how much of Ecclesiastes is once again reflected in Jesus' own teaching, Matthew chapter 5. He said, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus goes farther. He says, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus is questioning, like, why do you feel the need to add all these truth modifiers to your speech? Where we say things like, no, but honestly, dot, dot, dot. As if that gives like a plus one to the truthfulness of what I'm about to say. Or no, I swear to you, I promise this or that. By doing this, aren't we somewhat implying that our regular speech is somehow less than to be trusted or honest with others or with God? Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So on judgment day, our, our own words will be played back to us. And they will reveal what was really in our hearts. And what you say, your words can't make you right with God, but the overall tenor of your speech will reveal if your heart has been transformed by the love of God or not. Our words will excuse or accuse us. So, this is the teacher's second critique of religion. Empty words and empty promises. He comes down hard on a religion that would seek to impress God or manipulate God. But what's his alternative? What's his alternate approach to, to God? You see this in the very last verse, verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So his alternative approach to empty religion is to fear God. To actually take God seriously for who he is. And you do have to wonder, I mean, how much re religious stupidity would just never see the light of day if Christians took God seriously? God is the one you must fear, he says. Now, fear is, it's a strong word. And this has been said a million times, but uh, it probably bears repeating anyway. This does not mean that Christians ought to be afraid of God, cowering from him in fear. It's not quite that kind of fear. It's a kind of fear that rejoices and trembles, that respects and loves. It's a kind of fear that awes us, but it pulls us in instead of pushes us away. You see, the preacher's antidote to phony religion is awe. Taking ourself out of center stage of religious life and simply being in awe of God. To fear Him. To take Him seriously. Now, it's interesting. You wonder, okay, how do I do that? How do I love God and fear Him? How do I get that kind of fear? that's shaken by his existence and his power, and yet I still want to come close to him. 
These are the preacher's two alternative approaches to God that he gave gave both of us. Remember, the first one was to draw near. Draw near and listen instead of talking so much. Draw near to God. Listen to him. And then his second alternative approach is to fear God. How do I do both? How do I draw near to him and fear him at the same time? These seem to be at odds with each other. Now, no one has drawn this out better to my knowledge than uh, Professor Michael Reeves. He's got a little book called, What Does It Mean to Fear God? If you want to think more about this, I'd recommend that tiny book to you. Michael Reeves, What Does It Mean to Fear God? He has an expanded version called Rejoice and Tremble, if you want all the bonus stuff. But the small version is quite good as well. And Reeves, he, he references several older authors, uh, including Puritans like John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan, he, he absolutely nails it when he shows us how looking on the grace of God in the cross of Christ is what will deepen your fear of God and deepen your love for him all at the same time. Here's Bunyan. He says, There is nothing in heaven or earth that can sow all the heart as the grace of God. Tis that which makes a man fear. Tis that which makes a man tremble. Tis that which makes a man bow and bend and break to pieces. Nothing has that majesty and commanding greatness in and upon the heart of the sons of men as has the grace of God. What does he mean? He means that when you understand that the Son of God who knows and sees with x-ray vision all of your empty talk, all of your empty promises to God, all your blaspheming, all your thoughtless and heartless and irreverent worship, all your broken promises, your disinterested, begrudging church attendance. He sees all that. And not only does he see it and catch you red-handed, he chooses to forgive you and to take the punishment for you. And when you see that, it wrecks you. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The song asks. It causes me to what? To tremble. Tremble. Why? Well, Bunyan again. For if God shall come to you indeed and visit you with the forgiveness of sins, that visit removes the guilt but increases the sense of thy filth. That God hath forgiven a filthy sinner will make thee both rejoice and tremble. Oh, the happy confusion that will then cover thy face. (laughs) So this is old puritanical language, but his point is that when God visits you in your absolute red-handed guilt, forgives you your folly and your sin, then you will rejoice and tremble. How can you grow in the fear of God and still draw near to him at the same time? Look at the cross. Look at what your sin deserves. And then look at how willing Jesus was to bear it. There's another song. The chorus goes like this. I am afraid for no one's ever sacrificed and loved me this way. I'm afraid. I fear. I tremble because of how Jesus has loved me and sacrificed for me. It's a love so deep and radical that it shakes you to your bones. And this is how you learn to truly fear God. 
to get away from superficial, phony religion and to draw near to God in faith and love and trembling with wonder. And so even today, we can approach Him as we approach this table with reverent wonder. The Lord's table is open today to those who are walking in fellowship with Christ. Not perfectly, but reverently and sincerely. Now, if you're here today and you're not committed to Christ or you're not living for Him, then we would ask out of respect that you not take the Lord's Supper. But we would urge you to take Christ Himself as the living Lord of love who gladly gave Himself for you. So if you'll use the, uh, the wall aisles and the center aisle as we usually do to approach the table and the other two aisles to return to your seats, I'll lead us in taking the supper after everyone has come up and, and gotten the elements and returned to their seats. And if you need some help um, approaching the table to get the elements and you don't have someone to go up for you, if you'll just raise your worship guide after I pray, we have some attendants in the back who will look for you and we'll bring those to you. So let me pray and then I'll use, I'll use a prayer Um, that a Christian in days past wrote in response to the mercy of God that stirs up both love and fear. So let's pray. Lord, we are astonished at your gracious dealings with us. Why have you been so good to me for so many years and in so many ways? Why have you shown so much mercy and tenderness toward me? You've treated me as if I never grieved or offended you. Oh God, your love is like the sun. I cannot hardly gaze upon it. Its brightness would blind my eyes. I fear you because you are good to me. Amen. The table is open, but you can come when you're ready. Um, We've made some extra time in our worship service such that you have some time to reflect and pray as you approach God. Perhaps today of all days is a good day to do that, to pause. Take a few moments for prayer before you come to the table. And when you're ready, you will find the Lord of love ready and waiting for you here. So you can approach the table in confidence and with reverence because Jesus has done everything necessary to bring you into God's presence. The table is open. When you're ready, you may come.